Next one, uh, Martin, the whole issue of medico-legal claims against uh, doctors, against uh, hospitals. Uh, I read a report in the Business Day making reference to negligence claims against the state topping 104 billion rand. Obviously, that is a lot of uh, money. Then they also make uh, reference to the fact that the provincial health departments have faced a fourfold increase in payouts to victims of medical neg negligence over the same period. Now, obviously, the 104 billion is what was claimed. So, uh, not all of those claims were successful, but they make uh, reference to an amount of 109 billion rand for the 2018-2019 financial year. So, it certainly is something that is happening a lot in our courts. Claims uh, based on medical negligence are being instituted. And uh, yes, it's a pleasure to have an expert uh, on the panel today to talk about this. Um, firstly, maybe, Martin, we can give the listeners an idea of the types of uh, facts that can give rise to a medical negligence claim. I guess the locus classicus is uh, scissors being left in the belly uh, after an operation. I can also remember, I think at university we um, hear about the case where the wrong leg was amputated or where a woman was sterilized erroneously and could no longer have her own children, etc. So obviously there are a lot of horror stories that one can um, look at. But uh, yeah, give us an idea of the types of facts that could, could give uh, rise to such a claim. Yes, Volker, there are numerous uh, examples. Another one would be uh, a swap that is left behind in a belly or yes. excessive burns from uh, radium treatment, for example. Yeah. So those are the facts, and uh, most often one would say that that amounts to re ipsa or the facts speak for themselves. Yes. Um, however, uh, the patient will still have to prove all the elements of delict against the doctor or hospital uh, to be able to uh, succeed with his or her action. Yeah, I guess that is the crux, no? Um, to succeed with a, a medical negligence claim, you obviously have to prove negligence no? on the side of the doctor or the hospital, otherwise you won't be successful. That is correct, Volker. Um, what the patient has to prove on a balance of probabilities are the following. First of all, that there was negligence on the part of the doctor or the nursing staff. Uh, secondly, that he or she has suffered damages. Thirdly, and most importantly, that these damages are casually linked to the doctor or the hospital staff's negligent conduct. Uh, those are the important, ele important elements, uh, elements that need to be proven. Yes. Uh, in most cases that we see before the courts, that is the most difficult element that the courts uh, must decide upon. Okay. And tell me, um, getting experts to testify, if you now have a claim, uh, obviously you need to prove uh, negligence and the negligence test would then be applied with reference to a reasonable person who has the expertise and the training of a doctor. So obviously you're not going to use the test applied in respect of a normal reasonable man that doesn't have those qualifications and experience, etc. So you need experts, am I right, to testify in court? Mm. 
Uh, Volker, that's uh, correct. Uh, I would say that the presentation of uh, expert evidence, uh, medical evidence, is crucial in medical negligence actions. Uh, expert evidence is significant because it bolsters the plaintiff's case. Uh, it may be pivotal to support the defendant's case as well. It may give guidance to the courts on issues relating to their expertise. Uh, it enables the court to come to a correct decision when, for example, assessing the evidence uh, lead to determine the factual causation. So the court will consider the evidence by way of inferential reasoning and probabilities. Uh, the court decides how much weight must be attached to the evidence of the expert witness. Uh, to determine whether a medical practitioner or hospital staff is negligent, the court will measure the conduct against the yardstick of the average competent reasonable doctor in the same circumstances. Uh, the court said the following in Von Weyck versus Lewis in 1924 matter. Hmm. The testimony of experienced members of the medical profession is of the greatest value in questions of this kind. But the decision of what is reasonable under the circumstances is still for the court. It will pay high regard to the views of the profession, but it is not bound to adopt them. Hmm. So the court is not just going to ask the medical uh, expert to say whether he thinks the other doctor was negligent, yes or no. It's not as simple as that. That expert must <coughs> explain, and the court will then on its own accord decide whether the court believes uh, there was negligence. Uh, definitely, right? definitely. The uh, experts uh, of the plaintiff or the patient on the one hand and the defendant or the doctor on the other hand, uh, <clears throat> they will be weighed up and uh, the court will decide on a balance of probabilities what was the, um, what happened and yes. which expert to, uh, testimony to accept. Yes. Mm. You sometimes hear that doctors are not prepared to testify against each other. Is that the case or were you always somewhere fine an expert who was indeed prepared to, to testify? I think most doctors uh, will be hesitant uh, to do that, but um, most of these experts, uh, they write reports for the court. They, we call them medical legal reports. Yes. It's, their, uh, it's their profession, it's yeah. what they do, yeah. and they testify. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Another important issue is the whole question in respect of indemnities. To what extent will indemnities protect a doctor or the hospital, etc.? Uh, you were taken to the hospital, they obviously get you to sign all the forms, and part of that is an indemnity, which you then sign. Will that indemnity be a legal defense that the doctor and the hospital can then use? Yeah, this is a very uh, important a question one must bear in mind that uh, we now have the uh, Consumer Protection Act yes. and in terms of that act uh, I think it will be difficult for a doctor or a hospital uh, to use the indemnity as a defense hmm. uh, but, the, but the patient will still have to prove all the elements of the delict so uh, I don't think indemnities uh, are that prevalent anymore in medical negligence claims Next question I have relates to the contingency agreements that lawyers are prepared to sign with clients and that are these days available as an option and where you can then basically agree on a no success, no fee uh, basis for the um, 
uh, fees that the lawyer will then charge. Am I right? Perhaps you can just explain to the listeners, uh, Martin, how that works specifically with medical uh, negligence claims. And I think with third-party claims, it's, it's, it's similar, no? Oh, that's correct, Volker. Uh, the contingency agreement must comply with the uh, Contingency Fees Act. Uh, basically, it uh, means that uh, the client uh, will not have to pay the attorney's fees uh, if the action against uh, the RAF or the doctor or the hospital uh, should be unsuccessful. Um, the contingency agreement, uh, particularly in regard to medical negligence claims, uh, I would say is there to protect uh, the client. Um, <clears throat> the client knows that irrespective of whether the action is successful or not, uh, he or she will not have to pay the attorney's uh, fees. However, if the attorney should be successful, uh, he would be entitled to his fees with a surcharge on his fees as uh, provided for in the Contingency Fees Act. The client has 14 days after signing the contingency fee agreement uh, to cancel it and the client must get a copy of the contingency fee agreement. So whenever there is a risk that the action might not succeed, especially with medical negligence claims, I think the contingency agreement uh, definitely plays an important role. Now the benefit for the claimant is obviously that if you're not successful, then he doesn't have a big legal uh, bill to pay in terms of the attorney's uh, fees. No? There might still be some expenses that he has to cover, but at least the fees don't have to be paid. That's correct, Volker. Uh, the contingency agreement uh, does not uh, exonerate uh, the client from paying the attorney's disbursements incurred in the matter. Yes. And I guess the attorney will then also make sure that there is a good basis for the claim before pursuing it. No? So the homework will be done and uh, the attorney will normally make sure that there's a good a claim that can then be pursued. Yeah, I think so. You know, the attorney must have reasonable prospects. Or let me put it this way, there must be reasonable prospects that uh, the client will be successful in an action against uh, the doctor or the hospital or the road accident fund. Okay. So the calculation of the fee is then based on a percentage of the claim, am I, am I right? It works like this. Um, if the attorney is successful, he will uh, have his bill draw, drawn. Uh, we call that attorney own client uh, fees. Yes. Uh, the attorney will be entitled uh, to a 100% surcharge on those fees as uh, calculated by a cost consultant, uh, but it may never exceed 25% of the claim against the uh, doctor or hospital or the road accident fund. Those are claims uh, sounding in money. It's prescribed in the Act, no? the It's a, in accordance the with the, the Contingency again? Fees Act. Act no? So that's, that's where the percentage of 25% is, is, is prescribed. That's correct. Okay. Tell me the whole issue of causation. You made reference to that as one of the elements of a delict, which also has to um, be proven. Just explain a bit more about that. What does that exactly mean? Causation means that um, the damages must be linked or 
there must be a nexus between the negligence of the doctor and the damages that the client or the patient uh, has suffered. Yes, and one must result from the other one. That's correct. And uh, we distinguish between factual causation and legal causation. Yes. Okay. So I can elaborate if you like. Yes, factual please. causation um, is established by conclusions drawn from available facts yes. and relevant probabilities as they emerge from the evidence. Legal causation, <clears throat> on the other hand, concerns the question whether the doctor should be held legally liable for the damage he has caused in a wrongful and culpable manner. Yes. Okay. So if, for example, the claimant would have suffered those injuries or uh, the disease or whatever in any event um, and, and they were not the result of the actions of the doctor or the hospital or whatever, then obviously there's no causation necessarily between the negligence of the doctor or the hospital and the mm. losses that he suffered. That's, That's correct. more or less what it boils mm. down to. No? That's correct. I can just refer to a recent case <clears throat> where the court held uh, that the negligence uh, of the hospital uh, did not cause uh, the damage. Yes. So here the court said um, the test for factual causation is whether the act or commission or the omission of the defendant has been proved to have caused or materially contributed to the harm suffered. Yes. Where the defendant has negligently breached a legal duty and the plaintiff or the patient has suffered harm, it must still be proved that the breach is what caused the harm suffered. The crucial question in this case was whether the brain damage of the child uh, or the baby <clears throat> would have been avoided if the hospital staff had properly monitored the mother and fetus mm. and had acted appropriately uh, on the results. The expert witnesses agreed that a sudden interruption of the blood supply caused by cord compression had occurred. Hmm. There was no warning. The issue was whether there would have been sufficient time to avoid the damage by expediting the delivery. The court said it was not proved that there would have been uh, sufficient time with the result that the appeal had to be dismissed. So here, although the hospital was negligent, their negligence did not cause the damage. Understand. So if you argue away the negligence, the damages would still have been suffered. Okay. And that is the uh, important aspect, I think, of causation. Makes sense. But okay, let's say you managed to prove negligence, you managed to prove causation. Let's say, for example, there was an operation and the doctors were negligent and that caused your injuries thereafter and now you suffer, etc. Um, what type of damages can you then claim? What amount can you then claim from the doctor uh, or the hospital? Uh, the damages that can be claimed are basically uh, past and future medical costs, okay. uh, past and future loss of income, if uh, applicable. Yes. And if of you course, can't work because of the injury, then yeah. obviously there's a loss of your salary or whatever you, that you would have received no, and then correct. that must be compensated to you. That, that's correct. That must still be proven also. Um, and then lastly, general damages for pain and suffering, loss of amenities of life, uh, disfigurement, etc. Those are the heads of damages that uh, one can claim. Okay. And those, those damages uh, that are being claimed must be proven. And that, that is normally done with expert reports. Okay. 
So that's obviously where the patient survives and he's then the claimant. But let's say that patient passes away. What happens then to, for example, the dependents, the children yeah, or even a spouse? Do mm. they then also potentially have a claim? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> definitely, if um, the person who passed away uh, was responsible to support uh, dependents, like a wife or children, uh, they will have a claim against the doctor or hospital then. And I guess that can be substantial amounts. If, for example, it's a small child of one year old that was dependent on the deceased and that mm-hmm. now has to be supported for uh, many years to come, I guess those can be yeah. substantial amounts that then have to be paid by the doctors or the, or the hospitals. No? Yeah, that's correct. It could be a, a fairly substantial claim. And most of them do have insurance for this. Yes, I, I, I assume that most doctors have uh, insurance. Okay. The last one, Martin, that I maybe can just uh, touch on as well. You referred to this whole issue of res ipsa loquitur, uh, which is the Latin expression. Um, just explain that a bit uh, in, in a bit more detail, please. Yeah, res ipsa loquitur just basically means that um, the, the facts speak uh, for themselves. For instance, uh, the fact that the scissors uh, was left behind in a patient's belly uh, after the operation, uh, that will constitute uh, negligence per se. So it gives rise to an inference of negligent conduct. So it makes it just easier for the patient to prove negligence. I guess that's logical. I mean, if the patient can prove that this was what happened, then Obviously, the immediate inference would be that the doctor must have been negligent. So, the yes, onus would then be on the doctor to prove that something else happened, which um, maybe absolves him from negligence, but the facts speak from themselves, as you said. Yes, and I think that would be a difficult uh, onus on the doctor. Then. Thank you, uh, Martin. I think that's also an interesting one. Hopefully, the listeners also enjoyed that discussion on the uh, medical negligence claims.